From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Victory for Democrats depends on the West, says presidential candidate Senator Amy Klobuchar. What we need to do is build a blue wall of Democratic and independent and moderate Republican votes around these states and make Donald Trump pay for it. Klobuchar joins us. Then NPR's Ari Shapiro is talking with voters in Pueblo, like Mona Montoya, who runs a food pantry. It's a middle class that are hurting. Also, how hundreds of ballots from a previous election went uncounted, and what's being done to ensure that it doesn't happen again heading into Super Tuesday. Plus, Coloradans travel to Alabama to walk in the footsteps of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, that's how we tell our history, through stories. And the Denver man known as the Jackie Robinson of classical music. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Super Tuesday is almost here when Colorado and 13 other states hold presidential primaries. In the run-up, we've been speaking with the candidates. Today, Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, who's been campaigning in Colorado. She was in Aurora just last week. My colleague Ryan Warner reached her by phone this morning. Senator, thank you for being with us. A new poll has you at about 6% in Colorado. And when I solicited questions for you on Twitter, I heard from several moderate Democrats scared of a Bernie Sanders nomination. And they asked some version of this question. Why split the moderate vote and make it easier for Senator Sanders to win? Well, people haven't voted yet. And in fact, only 3% of the people of this country have voted. And when you look at it, I'm actually third in vote total, and Senator Warren and I are pretty much tied for number of delegates. And I actually think my argument, having been the only one left on the debate stage uh, that has won in rural areas and suburban areas, led a ticket um, and brought people with me in terms of winning big, is exactly what we need right now. I'm also the person up on the stage who's still in the Senate that's passed over 100 bills as the lead Democrat working with my friend Michael Bennett and many others in your state. And I think that it's important to have someone that doesn't just win, but also get things done when she gets there. That's why I'm running. Uh, Your campaign is not spending money on ads in Colorado. Why not? We actually are spending on digital ads uh, throughout Colorado. And Uh, We actually have been running ads all across the country, and because of uh, what happened with some of the recent debates, the New Hampshire debate, um, we've gotten in $14 million in literally just a few weeks after that, which has enabled us to build our team in Colorado, Um, and we hired uh, one of Senator Bennett's former political directors and um, have a really good team uh, that we put on the ground in Colorado. I was just in Aurora. My daughter's uh, been there the last few days because it's such a high priority uh, for us. And she's been in Pueblo and Colorado Springs, as well as Denver. Climate change has come up again and again among voters we've spoken with across the state. And I thought we might take a moment to explore an aspect of your climate plan, specifically what you call a landmark carbon pricing system that does not have a regressive impact on Americans. How do you put a price on something that's currently at the heart of the economy and not make it regressive? Good question. And I don't think we're going to be able to pass this and 
unless we make sure that the money goes right back to the people that need it. And this is how I would do it. You put a price on carbon, and you can do it in different ways. You can do it with a renewable electricity standard like you've done in your state. You can do it with cap and trade using a market mechanism, and you can also do it by putting a carbon tax or a fee. Okay, so you can do a combination of those things. You're going to bring in trillions of dollars, and it's going to create incentives, of course, for new technology. The key is to make sure that money goes right back to the people that are going to see changes in their heating or cooling bill, as well as areas that are going to see transition in jobs. Some areas will see new jobs. Some areas will see transitions. And I feel this not just from the facts. It's from the heart. You know, my grandpa was an iron ore miner. They closed those mines, opened them. There used to be a big billboard out of Duluth in the early 70s that I still remember that said, last one to leave, turn off the lights. We can't let that happen, or we're not going to be able to pass this, and it's not going to be good policy. So I'm devoted to making this work. Indeed, your most recent visit to Colorado brought you to Aurora, a community that's no stranger to gun violence. Is there gun control legislation that, as president, you think you could get through a divided Congress? There is. And in fact, three of the bills have made it through the House, um, some with some Republican support. Universal background checks, the bill that I've authored on closing the boyfriend loophole so that convicted domestic abusers can't go out there and get guns. And then finally, closing the Charleston loophole, which gives police more time to vet people that apply for guns. I would also, of course, favor other things like assault weapon ban and magazine limits. Um, But these things can get done. All we need is a president that wants to do them and is not afraid of the NRA and won't fold. Why do I think that? Because the majority of Trump voters now want universal background checks, according to a Fox poll last summer. The majority of hunters are two states, Minnesota and Colorado, are proud hunting states. And yet the majority of hunters now, there's been a sea change and want to see universal background checks. There's absolutely no reason that we can't get this done, except the president and Mitch McConnell are afraid of the NRA. So you think having a Democrat in the White House might usher in gun control legislation, and yet that wasn't true under President Obama, was it? Well, I, as I argue, there's been a big sea change since Parkland. I mean, the Moms Demand Action, the work of Colorado after Aurora and the school shooting, you name it, they basically paved the way to what we saw after Parkland, where those kids stood up in Florida, and a lot of kids across the country did what already had happened in Colorado. They started talking to their parents and their grandparents. Kind of what we saw in this country with gay marriage. In my mind, a lot of it with guns has started with the younger generation and what they have asked the questions, and then they marched, and then they voted in record numbers for a midterm. And it's part of the reason, you know, people like Jason Crow got elected, just because we saw a sea change in our country. The so-called blue wall through the Midwest kind of fell in 2016. Do you think that the path to victory for Democrats is now through the West? I think the West has a lot to do with a victory. And that is, of course, Colorado, but also Nevada. And I think I would add Arizona uh, to that as well. To me, when I've gone on tours of these states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, that we should have won in 2016, but for a variety of reasons did not. We came roaring back in 2018. 
and the West uh, was an anchor now. And so to me, I've called it the blue wall, and I think the blue wall extends to the West. Um, what we need to do is build a blue wall of Democratic and independent and moderate Republican votes around these states and make Donald Trump pay for it, uh, because there's a lot of people that haven't shared in the prosperity that he gloats about all the time. And that's because he hasn't done anything about costs, prescription drug costs, health care premiums, really hasn't built the infrastructure we need, caused a lot of trouble with the trade war, you name it. Will you back the Democratic nominee, whoever that is? Of course I will. Senator, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you very much. It was great to be on. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar is running for the Democratic presidential nomination. She spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner ahead of Super Tuesday. At CPR.org, you can hear our conversations with others in the race, Senator Bernie Sanders, Mayor Mike Bloomberg, and Tom Steyer. Well, leading up to Super Tuesday, CPR News has been canvassing the state, talking with voters to find out what issues matter most to them. NPR is doing something similar on a national level, and that outreach includes Colorado. All Things Considered, host Ari Shapiro is in Pueblo this week to get perspective on what's shaping the vote there. Welcome to the program, Ari. Hi, Avery. Good to be here. NPR is calling this initiative Where Voters Are. NPR's digital headline reads the eight key places that will explain the 2020 election. They include Charlotte, Dallas-Fort Worth, Milwaukee. How did Pueblo come into play? Well, as you notice, Charlotte, Fort Worth, Dallas, Milwaukee are big cities. Pueblo is about 100,000 people, so it just off the bat, has a very different profile from the rest of these places. When you look at the list, you see a wide range of geographic makeup, ethnic makeup, um, industry makeup. You know, you have financial centers like Charlotte, and then you have a place like Pueblo, which is nicknamed Steel City, but today only about 6% of the jobs are in manufacturing. And so this is a place that is trying to redefine uh, what its economy is based on. And, and that has interesting implications politically. There's so much about Pueblo that I've just found fascinating in the last week. And I, I should say right off the bat that for me as an outsider who has spent one week here, I'm a beginner and I'm just learning about this place that you and your listeners probably know far better than I do. But a lot of folks on social media have said, wait, Pueblo? Why Pueblo? And I think the fact that it is 50% Hispanic but narrowly went for President Trump is fascinating. The fact that it's been built on generations of immigration is fascinating. A lot of the cities that I report from, you can go to one particular neighborhood and you feel like it's the immigrant neighborhood in that city. But Pueblo still feels like it was built on immigration. You know, I went to this Italian deli called Gaglianos where the same family has owned it for more than a century. And that's not hard to find in Pueblo. So it's it's just a really interesting place. So I'm glad that you brought up that they narrowly went for President Trump in 2016. Pueblo is a city of about 100,000 people. The county Mm -hmm. voted for Democratic Governor Polis. But like you said, it backed President Trump, even though he lost in Colorado overall. What kind of political dynamic are you finding as you talk with the people who live there? You know, this is a place where people still split their tickets, which fewer Americans do today than they used to. It's a place where people might vote for, uh, you know, support Governor Polis and support President Trump. Um, It's been a labor stronghold since the 1930s because of the steel union, which is less powerful today than it used to be, but still a major force. Um, And one of the union leaders who I talked to told me that he thinks that probably about a third of his membership voted for President Trump, which is really interesting. Interesting. Trump has built a lot of his presidents, a lot of his presidency on bringing back American manufacturing. Of course, he put steel tariffs in place. And so people who are hoping to see manufacturing return to a city like Pueblo 
might be willing to throw their support behind President Trump, even if historically they and their families have tended to vote for Democrats. So let's talk a little bit more about steel. Pueblo has had to diversify its economy, especially as steel jobs start to go away. You spoke with the president of the Steelworkers Union there, like you said. And what's his perspective on how this is shaping the vote? Yeah, so his name is Chuck Perko. He's president of one of the steel unions here. He is the fourth generation in his family to work at the mill. Um, He didn't graduate from college, and he knows that he's really lucky that he didn't need to. He told me the mill has about 10% of the jobs that it used to have. We we sat down at his union hall and, and had a conversation. Here's a bit of what he said. One of the things that you see kind of written on a lot of the new hard hats is hashtag mill money, because it's still one of the best paying jobs for somebody uh, out there that may not necessarily have a college degree. The steel workers, when somebody sees someone in that orange jacket walking around, they know there's someone that's providing for their family. When I hear someone say that job at McDonald's is, they they don't deserve to make uh, even $12 an hour because they should pick themselves up by their bootstraps and go do something else. Those people work harder than I do. I'll be the first to admit it and they deserve to be paid for their labor. Um, you and sound so, like a Bernie Sanders supporter. I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did I just call that? He said in the past he's also uh, been a supporter of Warren and Klobuchar and Biden. He told me he likes the Democrats who either have a blue-collar background or a plan for blue-collar workers. He says he, he doesn't want to associate with the Democrats who he thinks of as supporting the bankers. But at the same time, you know, I talked to the president of the Chamber of Commerce here, a guy named Rod Slyhoff, and he said when President Trump talks about manufacturing, he might not be saying the exact right things, but at least it's reassuring to hear that this is a president who has that issue on the forefront of his mind. So, you know, you've got this steel union president who is in the middle of the manufacturing sector, who doesn't trust what President Trump is saying, and the president and CEO of the town's uh, Chamber of Commerce, who does. And another person that you met, a woman who runs a food pantry in Pueblo, tell me a little bit about her perspective. Well, you have to understand that a quarter of the people in Pueblo live at or below the poverty line. So this is a place that is really struggling. You know, you can sort of look at it as a story of two economies. On the one hand, unemployment is extremely low. The stock market for the last few years has been doing really well. On the other hand, you have people who are truly struggling. This is a food pantry that opened up more than 30 years ago to help laid off steel workers. It was started by a consortium of churches in Pueblo. It's called the Cooperative Care Center. And Mona Montoya has run it for 27, almost 28 years now, and she told me that the people who she is seeing come in for food and toiletries and medicine and help today are not those laid-off steelworkers anymore. It's a middle class now that we're that are hurting. Well, we've seen people from the police department, fire department, school teachers, nurses. You close your eyes and you think of a homeless person, their families. And there's where it really pains us to to see this kind of deal. And we talked to some of those people. You know, I met a 68-year-old retiree who spent most of her life working as a librarian. She lives with her disabled adult daughter and two grandkids. And she was there at the end of the month saying, we just don't have enough to make um, the the food stamps, the, the SNAP benefits last to feed the family of four that we have. And she never thought, having worked as a librarian for all of these years, that she would be hungry in her retirement, but but there she was at the food pantry. A lot of complicated experiences people bring to this. As you speak with people in Pueblo, what surprised you most about their responses? Anecdotally, is there any agreement about what's the most important issues in the community and the region? 
The divide that I found was between the people who want to rebuild the manufacturing foundation that Pueblo was built on for more than a century, and the people who see opportunity in different sectors. You know, there are growing numbers of jobs in the marijuana industry, in solar and wind power. And there are people who say, for all of the good that manufacturing did in Pueblo, it's time to pour our resources into some of these newer growing sectors. And then there are others who say, our best manufacturing days may be behind us, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a manufacturing present and future, and that's what we should lean into. And, and that translates pretty directly into who these candidates, uh, which candidates these voters support. And just briefly, more than half of the people who live in, vote in Pueblo are Latino, and Democrats outnumber Republicans. As you talk mm -hmm. with voters, how has that come into play heading into Super Tuesday and the general election? I mean, the thing that's so interesting to me is people here generally identify as Hispanic rather than Latino. Many of them identify both as white and as Hispanic. And we think of Hispanic or Latino voters as tending to vote for Democrats. But as, as you mentioned, President Trump narrowly won this area four years ago. And so we're going to be making a series of visits to Pueblo, just as, you know, mm -hmm. Steve Inskeep is going to be visiting Charlotte, North Carolina, and all of the other hosts are going to be visiting these other cities that are part of this Where Voters Are project. And so over the next nine months, we're going to see how opinions evolve, how major national events affect the points of view of voters in these towns. And even though I've only spent about a week in Pueblo so far, I'm really looking forward to getting to know it better and following it over the course of this election season. Ari, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Ari Shapiro co-hosts NPR's All Things Considered. He's in Pueblo this week talking with voters leading up to Super Tuesday as a part of NPR's year-long election series, where voters are. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Public radio is flourishing across the country and here in Colorado. Hi, I'm Abigail Beckman, Morning Edition host on KRCC in Colorado Springs. And I'm Mike Lamp, your Morning Edition host here on CPR News. KRCC is partnering with Colorado Public Radio. With our new partnership, you'll get a greater focus on Colorado's issues from both the KRCC and CPR newsrooms. And you'll hear it from Wyoming to New Mexico and all across the state with a new coordinated weekday schedule on CPR News and KRCC. See the details at CPR.org. Imagine the scene. It's two weeks before the presidential primary election. County employees are bringing in the first batch of ballots from the Dropbox in front of their office. And there are a lot of them, way more than you'd expect. And then they realize these aren't current ballots. They're old ones, hundreds left uncounted from the general election last fall. That's the scene that played out at the Mesa County Clerk's Office last week. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg has been covering everything that's happened since. Hi, Stina. Hi, Avery. Stina, let's start with the Dropbox right outside the clerk's office. That seems kind of hard to overlook. Oh, yeah. So... It's impossible to miss. It's sort of like a collection box outside a post office. You know, and just like a post office drop box, a ballot drop box can't do its job unless it's emptied. And the crazy thing is that I was there at that box at 7 p.m. on Election Day. I watched a guy walk up. He had a, something like some sort of bar in his hand. And he locks the box with this bar and walks back inside. And, you know, within, within a few minutes, uh, one, two minutes, a couple people pull up frantically in their cars and they're trying to stuff their ballot in there and they can't because it's locked. And um, what they didn't know, what I didn't know, 
what it seems very clear that that guy didn't know is that this was all a fool's errand because no one emptied the box and there were 574 ballots that were left in there only to be discovered last week. Now, as you've reported, there weren't enough ballots in the box to change the outcomes in any of the races in last year's election. But I'm curious, are they going to count them? Will they change the final totals for the election overall? I don't think so. I I can't be sure because uh, Mesa County clerk and recorder Tina Peters, uh, she hasn't really called me back or written me back since last week. Uh, But the last time we had a conversation, she said that the first thing she checked was to make sure any of these ballots concerned close races and none did. What does the clerk say about what happened? So last time Tina uh, Peters and I spoke, that was really still just this big question that was hanging in the air. Until we pulled the videotape, I don't know exactly who was responsible for this, but I can assure you that this will never happen again. But here's the thing. I mean, it was a bipartisan team that was supposed to collect the ballots. So it's not just like one guy forgot and that's the whole story. There's a bigger systemic failure here. This is crazy. What does Colorado law say should happen in situations like this? Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, Judd Choate, he's the state election director. He told me that there's no mechanism in the state for counting ballots received late. You'd basically need a court order to open and count those ballots. Mesa County really just got lucky that they didn't have any close outcomes because uh, this particular circumstance would set up very nicely for a claim by a losing candidate. It's just that none of their candidates lost by that margin. Does the Mesa County clerk face any repercussions for this? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, public trust is definitely damaged. The Daily Sentinel newspaper called on Tina Peters to resign in an op-ed over the weekend. And there's actually a petition I just saw calling for her to resign. And it just started a couple days ago. And so far, 325 people have signed. And just basically around town, people are talking about it as this big failure. And that seems to be a bipartisan, sort of nonpartisan conversation. It's She's a Republican, but it's not like Democrats are calling for her to resign. It's pretty much like a wide group of people. Um, but there's really no sense whether that's going to happen or not. And the state elections office won't weigh in on it. They say that's something for the voters to decide. Now, of course, there is another election coming up next week, a very important one. What is Mesa County doing to make sure this doesn't happen again? So they say that they're going to have not one group of bipartisan judges, but two groups of bipartisan judges check the drop box at the the drop boxes at the end of the night. And there's about I think there's there's five or six in the county. So it means that someone will go through and empty the ballots and then another group will go through and make sure that you know it's actually empty. Um, and it should be said that the state elections department will actually be there that night monitoring the election. And they might be there in November, too, if they feel like that's necessary. Stina, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. That's CPR Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. She's been covering the discovery of nearly 600 uncounted ballots from last fall's election in Mesa County. A group of people from Colorado went to Montgomery and Selma, Alabama this month. For some of them, it wasn't the first time. They'd been there in the 60s to march for civil rights. CPR's Anthony Cotton went with them and found that these civil rights activists feel like their fight is still going on. 
Dusk is turning into night, and what was a gentle breeze has transformed into a steady wind. Despite the increasing cold, Sheldon Steinhauser only has a light jacket on. But as he stands at the foot of Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge, it's not the elements that chills him. For me, it's an incredibly emotional experience. Steinhauser has been in Alabama before. He actually marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1965. But he hasn't been on this bridge, which spans 1,248 feet and decades of history. To wonder what it must have been like for the people who came across that bridge. I have so much respect and admiration for the people who did that. Working with the Anti-Defamation League, Steinhauser was a white man allied in the movement for civil rights. In 65, he and the other Coloradans joined King to march to the state capitol in Montgomery. That was significant because twice before, civil rights activists had tried to get to the state capitol, but were met and turned back on this bridge by state troopers. Walk with me. During the first effort, in what came to be known as Bloody Sunday, troopers, some of them on horseback, waded into the crowd, firing tear gas and beating the marchers. It's detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You are ordered to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue. This trip in 2020 is about looking to the past in order to understand the civil rights challenges of today. Before Steinhauser and the others got to this bridge in Selma, they spent the day in Montgomery, starting with the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. It's an open space park with more than 800 steel slabs etched with the names of over 4,000 lynching victims. I love He heard my cry. While Alabama's landscape has changed, Steinhauser says the emotions he felt in 1965 have come rushing back. I'm not sure how I can describe the feeling. So many terrible things happened here. And I'm trying to keep an open mind about, you know, the progress that's been made since that time. But they stirred memories of the hatred that we felt when we got here and how frightened we, some of us were, many of us were, about being in this place. Steinhauser and his group also visited the Legacy Museum. It's housed in a building where slaves were imprisoned, a block away from where they were auctioned off. Its founder is a noted civil rights attorney, Brian Stevenson. He says in a video inside the museum that it tells the African-American narrative from slavery through the civil rights movement. We want to create an institution that allows people to experience directly what this history means. In America, we don't talk about slavery. We don't talk about lynching. We don't talk about segregation. So now it's time to talk about it. We want to build this museum. Steinhauser isn't the only person on this trip who marched with King in Alabama. Stephen Foster also joined the journey into the state capitol. Now, Foster is the rabbi emeritus at Temple Emanuel in Denver. Back then, standing with King and Steinhauser, he was a college senior who made his way down from Wisconsin. There were a lot of threats to the bus companies for bringing people down. And it was the middle of the black neighborhood. 
the streets were not paved. Mud streets. But the people in the community, they were open arms. We had food and drink and they took care of us. There was one man in particular who um, marched the 50 miles on crutches and his hands were all bloody. He had one leg and he, he went. Steinhauser said the out-of-towners who came to Alabama back then often referred to themselves as 24-hour heroes, meaning they had a temporary presence, as opposed to those who were involved in the struggle on a daily basis, people like Joanne Bland. By the time I was 11 years old, I had been in jail 13 documented times. Bland lives in Selma. As a child, she told the anti-defamation group, her idea of freedom was someday being able to sit at the counter at Carter's Drugstore. She used to watch from outside the window as white children ate ice cream and spun their stools around. But Bland said that changed on Bloody Sunday when she joined the marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and saw the brutality. Suddenly I hear gunshots and screams. I think they're killing the people down front. Bland saw the troopers wade into protesters. She said she witnessed people splayed all over the sidewalks and on the bridge itself. Bland never did sit at the counter at Carter's drugstore. Disheartened but not out of the fight, she would also join Martin Luther King Jr. and the other protesters who marched to the state capitol. As she relates her experiences today in 2020, she hears that Steinhauser and Foster were there at the same time. You guys were really in danger. Me, I could blend in then. Yeah. But you couldn't stay at hotels. You were outside agitated. Your life was in danger every minute you were here. Later, back on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, Steinhauser takes time to reflect on the day and its time here decades earlier. But I was proud of everybody in that march, not because we thought of ourselves as heroes of any sort, but because we were lending our support to the local people and becoming unwittingly maybe, a milestone in the civil rights struggle of the United States. So, how proud of you of today? I'm very proud of today. I'm very proud of the Anti-Defamation League. I'm very honored that I was able to share some of my personal experiences because, you know, that's how we tell our history, through stories. And Steinhauser is proud to be able to walk finally, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. In Selma and Montgomery, Alabama, I'm Anthony Cotton, CPR News. Anthony Cotton joins us now on the phone. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Avery. Sheldon Steinhauser seems like quite a guy. What were your impressions of him? He's a pretty tough dude, 89 years old, and it's clear how passionate he still is for social justice. And he has tremendous energy. The, the Anti-Defamation League group from Denver was running around Alabama for almost 12 hours, and they had actually started their day in Atlanta. They got up early and took a bus from there to Montgomery, and he, he never wavered. I, I kind of wondered whether or not he would walk across the bridge, because by then some of the people in the group just rode across on, on their bus, but there was no way he wasn't going to walk it. 
And like he said, his memories from more than 50 years ago, marching with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., came rushing back for him. He's a part of history, but he also recognized that history is disturbing on a number of levels. Yeah, it's 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 honestly, it's really tough being there. Uh, you're you're kind of walking a fine line because you're seething at witnessing the injustices and humanities that African Americans faced from the time of slavery, and they're they're all right there in front of you, displayed at places like the Legacy Museum and the Memorial for Peace and Justice. But at the same time, you want people to see these things in order to acknowledge that chapter in history and perhaps even let it provide a lens to look at issues like voter suppression in places like Georgia that we're facing today. And that was really part of the message shared with the group by Joanne Bland. She was an an 11-year-old in 65, but she's still telling the stories. The ADL was the third group Bland had met with on the day that they were there. And she says that even 55 years later, she still has a responsibility to speak out. I truly believe that social movements are like jigsaw puzzles, that everybody has a piece. And I think this is my piece in the puzzle for social change, to do this until I can. And when I can, I hope it's recorded where people can still hear that You have to know where we've been to take us where we need to go. Otherwise, you're going to be bogged down making the same mistakes. After what she's seen and done, you might expect that she doesn't have any patience for foolishness. And she's really very happy to speak her mind. At one point, she told the group that when she was a child, there were only a handful of Jews living in Selma. And with the exception of one man who had a full beard and reminded the kids of Santa Claus, They were all pretty mean, even discriminatory to the blacks there. So as far as she was concerned, the people from the ADL, who were mostly Jewish, looked just like the people who had mistreated her as a child in in Selma. And I think that really shocked some of them. I'm always honest. I just think it needs to be kicked plainly. You need, whether it's to children uh, or to old people, that's what has to happen in order for us to get where we need honest talks. We don't have honest talks. We just uh, sugarcoat stuff so I won't make you feel bad. I don't play that. I don't play that. So Steinhauser readily acknowledges, of course, that what he did didn't compare to the work that was done by people like Bland. At the same time, though, you could see how touched she was when she heard that Steinhauser and Stephen Foster, the rabbi emeritus at Temple Emanuel in Denver, had also marched in 65. I think it was really a a nice sign of the bond that only those who were so intimately involved in the struggle back then could truly understand. Thanks, Anthony. You're welcome. CPR News producer Anthony Cotton was recently in Selma and Montgomery, Alabama, with a group from the Rocky Mountain chapter of the Anti-Defamation League. Climate change has become a top issue in the presidential election. CPR News heard from some 700 voters, and of all the issues, they said they want a candidate who most aligns with their views on climate and the environment. To help voters make a decision before Super Tuesday, CPR's Sam Brash sorts through the candidate's plans on climate. 
When you think of a, quote, climate voter, Judith Huber might not be the first person who comes to mind. The retiree in Denver is 76, has no kids, and expects she'll never see the worst consequences of climate change. I'm probably not going to be around and be affected that much by it, but I, I think we owe it to the future. Hubert says a lot of her concerns come down to her faith. She taught in Catholic biblical schools for decades, and in her religion, she sees a moral duty to protect the planet. I believe that we have been called to care for creation, and we're not doing a very good job of it. So when it comes to the presidential candidates, she's looking for someone who can lay out a practical approach. She isn't sure who that is yet, but she knows who it's not. Obviously, uh, the president's response has me very frightened because he doesn't seem to acknowledge that it even exists, that it's even an issue. This was a common response among Coloradans worried about climate change. After three years of rolling back environmental policies, President Trump has little trust with Colorado's growing base of climate voters. But among many voters we spoke to, there was another point of agreement. They want clear, realistic plans from the Democratic candidates. I would want to see like impactful and achievable kind of that balance. It's been sort of vague, like, of what the actual concrete steps they're going to take are going to be, as opposed to just throwing out funny numbers and saying it's a big issue. That was Jeff Baltrish of Boulder and David Zylus of Denver. Each of them has wrestled with how to vote on Super Tuesday. They say the candidates and the media haven't really detailed different climate plans. So for the next few minutes, we're going to break it down. And we're going to start with the problem. Um, If action is not taken, it will take the planet into an unprecedented climate future. If we This is a scientist with the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Their latest report says to avoid the worst droughts, floods, and sea level rise, humanity needs to stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere by 2050. David Zylus, a mechanical engineer in Denver, says that should be a wake-up call. It really gives us a firm deadline to work towards, which makes this presidential election feel even more important than past ones. All the major Democratic presidential candidates say their plans would meet or even accelerate the IPCC goals. The differences lie in how they'd get there. For more moderate candidates like Biden, Klobuchar, and Buttigieg, a lot of the answer is market-based solutions. Would you support uh, a carbon tax? Yeah, no, I I, I would. So what I would do is, first of all, putting a price on carbon. Well, the beauty of things like a carbon tax is it lets a lot of these things get sorted out without anybody in Washington having to figure out all the answers. Economists like the idea because companies and customers could decide for themselves how to transition away from fossil fuels. And some candidates, like Buttigieg, have proposed giving the proceeds directly back to U.S. taxpayers. So that low- and middle-income Americans are made more than whole. But progressives are skeptical. Senator Elizabeth Warren says a tax should be one piece of a far broader climate plan, a plan that reaches into manufacturing, jobs, trade policy, and more. Senator Bernie Sanders opposes a carbon tax altogether. Each of them has placed more emphasis on direct efforts to curtail fossil fuels. Here's Sanders. We need to put an end to fracking, not only in New York and Vermont, but all over this country. 
That's just one piece of Sanders' massive Green New Deal. It promises to tackle inequality and climate change at once, with federal investments on the scale of what it took to fight World War II. $16.3 trillion for everything from new jobs to bullet trains. To help get the money, he hopes to create a public power provider, so your electricity bill could ultimately go to the federal government. We are going to produce a massive amount of electricity, from solar and from wind and from other sustainable energies, and we will sell it out. And by the way, we're going to make money doing that. Hubert, the retired Catholic school teacher, isn't sure what to make of such vast ambitions. I value the aspirational, and I wish we could all get there right away. But I think if they're aiming too high, it won't get anywhere. And with time running out for the planet, she wonders if the best climate plan might be the one that can actually pass. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. He's known as the Jackie Robinson of classical music. During segregation, he was the first African-American to sign with a U.S. symphony orchestra. That was in 1949 with the Denver Symphony, what we know today as the Colorado Symphony. Charlie Burrell paved the way for other black musicians. I'll never forget, I was 12 years old, and I was playing with the set called the um, Crystal Radio, and I heard something and it had to be the San Francisco Symphony playing Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony and conducted by Pierre Montour. And at that moment, I fell in love with it. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to play with that, that band. I didn't know it was an orchestra, that band. The very sound of the bass just touching it was my thrill. They used to look at me and laugh and say, what are you doing playing the white man's music? You never be accepted, so why even bother? I was talking to my mother about that, and she said, don't let that bother you. Do whatever you want to do, but do it with class and dignity. That audio, courtesy of the San Francisco Symphony. Charlie Burrell, who turns 100 this year, recently sat down with CPR classical host Ray White to reflect on his life in music. He remembers the first bass he ever played. He was in junior high in Detroit and decided to take up the instrument as a way to cut class. It was at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and all the kids were antsy to get out and play, including me. And my uh, music teacher then, whose name was Harrington, came in and said, look, we have a couple of instruments left. Who would like to play an instrument in the band, you know? And I thought, I'm the band, what's the the band, you know? So eager to get out of school, I said, raise my hand. And he said, okay. So he took me to this little band room, which was a shell of a room, and uh, he pointed to the corner where they said, there it is. I looked at it, I didn't know what it was, but to my amazement, I found out that it was a aluminum gray string bass, which they gave to the kids in those days because they couldn't demolish them, and I later, later found out about that too. But that was my first introduction to the bass violin, and I said, I'll take it. Well, you're a kid, so you got a bass in front of you, an aluminum bass, and your mom got you something to help you cart that bass around. Oh, yeah, my... I often talk about my little red wagon. <laughs> that was the funniest <laughs> thing in the world because she uh, went down to the Goodwill in those days and uh, 
got this little red wagon for 25 cents. And she says, here, son, this will help you transport your base. And I had to laugh because I had to walk three miles with, you know, with the little red wagon in the base. And, of course, a little later on, I had to carry the little base and a tuba. Now, a lot of people don't know what a tuba is or was. So the people would look at me like, oh, what is this thing going down the street, you know, with a tuba around his neck and a bass fiddle in his, in his little red uh, wagon. So it was quite an experience. You know, it is quite a badge of honor. I lived in New York City, and I'd go up and down the stairs in the subway and everything, and to see the bass players, the double bass players, where they always put a wheel on the end of uh, the, the bottom of the, the you know their case, and that's how they are able to get that, around. That came along later, much later. But but I'm always thinking that it's a bit of a badge of an honor for a bass player, and like you with your wagon, is to well, carton this thing around, says that I'm proud of this instrument. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you very much, because... I never thought anything about it, just that there's something I needed, and I did it. But the big thing was walking three miles from our home to a, a school called Cass Tech High School where they had music, you know. And that was a big thing for me because I loved every second of it, you know. I never felt like I'd like to look back or never had any remorse about what I was doing. I just went ahead, full speed ahead, and no one could tell stop me, you know. And, of course, they laughed at me. The kids laughed at me. said, oh, you're a sissy and all that sort of thing. Of course, being from the ghetto, I talk about their mother and then that. So um, (laughs) we had a good time, but it was okay. As we heard earlier, a young Burrell dreamed of someday playing with that band he heard coming through his crystal radio. Well, that day would come 28 years later when he joined the prominent San Francisco Symphony. Oh, yeah, it took me a real, real long while, but... And I never got uh, impatient, you know. <clears throat> I stuck right to my guns because every morning, it was my in, my my thing to get up at four o'clock in the morning and start practicing until eight every morning. When I look back now, I never had a vacation until I'd been playing for twenty years. Oh, I, I had my first vacation from music, and I, after two hours, I almost went crazy. I had to look for where, 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 where's the bass, where's the bass, you know. Yeah, I said, well, okay, here it is. And I went back to it, and I haven't, and from then on, I didn't slow down at all. I still practiced anywhere from four to five to six hours a day. Even when I got with the Denver Symphony, I was practicing four hours. And I don't know, when I got to San Francisco Symphony, I was practicing eight hours a day. And that was all I did was practice. You know, they, they couldn't get a hold of me. And I had no time for anything else, hardly, but but practicing, but it, it paid off a little bit. Burrell's love of music isn't limited to just classical. He's equally adept in the world of jazz, which puts him in a very rare class of musicians. He was in the house band for the Rossonian Hotel in Denver's Five Points and played in Colorado's first integrated jazz trio. He shared the stage with such greats as Charlie Parker, Ella Fitzgerald, and Billie Holiday. Here's Burrell on a recording from back in the day at the Lakeside Amusement Park Jazz Club.
the Ralph Sutton trio there. CPR's Classicals' Ray White asked him about one of the key players that made an impression on Burrell, fellow double bassist Milt Hinton. And you were invited to watch him play at a club somewhere, and he was cooking steaks, and uh, which I thought was kind of cool, you know, that in between sets... He's back there cooking a T-bone, and he said, hey, do you want some? And uh, so you were also learning tricks from the master in Milt Hinton, but you were also learning about uh, being a musician and being a grown-up. And the point that I'm making is that the reason he was cooking backstage was because there were a lot of restaurants that musicians, African-American, black people could not go to. So he <laughs> chose to cook back backstage. That's true because... Uh... It was at the Michigan Theater in Detroit. That's where it was. And uh, that was in days when they had the performers had to do, I think, four four shows a day. Wow. You know, so Milt Milt was there doing his little thing with uh, Cab Calloway's band. Anyhow, he took me up to his room and said, uh, here's one of the tricks you should learn about being a musician. He said, how to cook, you know. In your dressing room, and he had this little flat thing, I guess you call it. He said, "Here's here we go." And so he cooked up a T-bone steak. It was magnificent. I'll never forget. It was magnificent. <laughs> and I, besides cooking a T-bone steak, he taught me about other things about life, how to be respectful for your yourself, your family, and everyone else. He says that's a way to get ahead. Don't harbor any grudges, he says. Just go straight forward ahead. And thank God that you were there at that time and when you were. Charlie Burrell speaking recently with CPR classical host Ray White. You can hear their full interview at CPR.org. Burrell turns 100 years young this fall. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.